The Inversions, Part 6 Heavens, Singular or Plural Everything outside of planet Earth we call space, or outer space. This inversion is about reclaiming wonder for the heavens, which has been lost during the onslaught of what we call the Enlightenment. But I think a better name for the Enlightenment might be the Great Flattening, or maybe the Vanillaing, or perhaps the Vacuuming, since we have undergone three centuries of sucking the enchantment out of life, making heaven and all spiritual things prohibited from the public square. Instead of lying in the grass or on a rooftop, looking up in awe at the incredible depth of the heavens, we are now face down looking at web telescope pictures of space on our phones. What a buzzkill. The pictures are amazing, but the wonder is gone if we just see the pics as the images of a mechanical automation spun off by an absentee creator. Even the word space tastes like a saltine cracker compared to the triple fudge sundae of the word heavens. Perhaps you notice that the word is plural in some translations of the opening line of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In some translations, heaven is singular, but most use the plural form. This requires some inspection because we tend to only think of heaven as where God is, but the Bible uses this word to mean the sky, the stars, and where the angels and saints live. Before going too far in this inversion, let's set a stake in the ground as a marker. Whether we say heavens or heaven matters little in the end. What matters is enchantment. When you are re-enchanted to say heavens instead of space, heavens becomes larger and more inclusive than what the engineers and physicists have taught us to believe. Seeing the heavens open, it opens creation back up to link the immaterial with the material. Much like the composite of our body and soul, so are the heavens of the angels and the stars and the saints and the sky. All of God's creation brings the believer a collective wonder. So how many heavens are there? Or how many levels? Dante, the, the Italian poet who wrote the Inferno, or the Divine Comedy, had ten levels. But according to St. Paul, there are three. So let's stick with St. Paul. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven. In the days of creation, we can also read of this idea of three heavens or three levels. There is one, the atmosphere or air, the place of birds and clouds. And then there's two, the starry heaven, what we now call by more dull names like space or the universe. And three, highest heaven, the third heaven, the heaven closest to God. The unseen and visible realm is best described in the book of Revelation. Another name for this is paradise. We still use terms like this today when speaking of the heavens, but we mean different things when talking about heaven at a funeral versus talking about the heavens in an astronomy class, which they rarely use that term, but that's where you might use it. The first answer everyone wishes to know is, what is this third heaven? Is it a place? Is it a dimension? We often use metaphors of mountains or clouds with our imaginations, but imagination is a bit dangerous. Popular ideas about heaven imagined by artists suggest that it's all harps and pearly gates, 
And that seems kind of weak. This is likely why many people would rather rock out at a music festival than pursue heaven and the beatific vision of living with God eternally. Uh, so please set aside those old artistic images and think of them no longer, because Jesus doesn't elaborate when he tells the apostles that he will go to make a place for them. He makes no mention of harps or gates. He only speaks of, quote, dwelling places. In John chapter 14, he says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may also be. So if, so it is a place, but it, a place we cannot fully know yet. It's like a house of some kind. A good spiritual reading on heavenly places is The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila. Now there is a mystic that needs to be read by modern people. She embraced the mystery of the heavens and had the gift of articulation for this place that can never be fully articulated in human words. Mystics like Teresa of Avila can lead us toward God without giving us a formulaic answer. This is frustrating for us in the age of data because we want to know all the details. But Jesus says if we know him, we will know the way to his house. And that is sufficient for our salvation. We want all the data. But one of the most important steps toward humility before God is accepting that we cannot know all because we are not God. The concept of the, quote, place of heaven where the saints exist is a mystery. And the greatest of the act of faith, uh, from the Trinity to the Incarnation to the Eucharist at Mass, is enmeshing our whole minds, hearts, bodies, and souls into these mysteries in humble prayer. This place of heaven is yet another wonderful mystery, which is why meditating on the glorious mysteries of the rosary every Wednesday and Sunday is a great way to spend an hour. But like many mysteries, Jesus gives clues. I go to make a place for you, he tells the apostles. He tells them there would be a place for them to be after earthly death. The third heaven is that place. In other words, what we usually think of as heaven means the third heaven that St. Paul speaks of when his friend in Christ was caught up to the third heaven. This is powerful language. St. Paul, like his friend in Christ, is a saint, which means his soul is in the third heaven, even though the bodily resurrection has not yet happened. A few people have been taken up body and soul already to heaven. We know that Jesus' resurrected body and soul went to heaven on his own power in the mystery of the ascension, the only other human we know for certain was taken up body and soul into heaven is the mother of God, Mary. She was assumed into heaven, as in pulled up body and soul. As for us regular humans who experienced the effects of the fall, we know of three specific people in the Bible who seem to have been pulled up to this third heaven. The first one was Enoch in, chapter, in Genesis 5, who walked with God, then he was no more because God took him. Elijah the prophet is the second one who goes up to the third heaven in a fiery chariot. And the third one is Moses, whose resting place is unknown, and it is a traditional pious belief that he was taken up to heaven, kind of like Elijah. That This brings us to one of the strangest events in the gospel, which is why you should pause on this mystery every Thursday during the Luminous Mysteries of the Rosary. I'm talking about the transfiguration, which has much to do with heaven. 
Jesus takes three apostles to a mountaintop. Jesus there then turns into pure light. And it says in the gospel, There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Now, the light aspect of this event requires a whole chapter of its own. But for now, just consider who appears with Jesus. So there's the apostles, Peter, James, and John, who have gone with him. But then suddenly Moses and Elijah, two spiritual heavyweights, flank Jesus on either side. Notably, these two men are believed to have gone straight up to heaven. Could this be a preview of the third heaven for the apostles? Could it be that Jesus is showing a glimpse of the unseen, invisible realm? Yes, I would say of course it is. What are Moses and Elijah doing? They are talking with Jesus. So understand that this is heaven. They are face to face and talking to God. To paraphrase another quote from St. Paul, he says that here on earth we see through a glass darkly, but in heaven we will be face to face with God. What is happening on the mountain of the transfiguration? We see in heaven Moses and Elijah are face to face speaking with God. That's what heaven is. No harp is needed. Consider the sixth beatitude here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Those who have been purified live in rest, in peace, with God, face to face. It's no wonder that Peter is stunned and stammers some nonsense on the mountain where the transfiguration happens. He hasn't been purified yet for heaven. James and John also fall to the ground when God speaks. And what mere human wouldn't fall to his knees and stammer at this sight? That is actually the correct response. Uh, they see their infinite unequalness to God's glory. Their finiteness is so apparent when they are among near the infinite. Seeing Jesus turn blindingly bright and talking to the long-deceased Moses and Elijah, that alone would bring jaw-dropping wonder. Then you enter in the booming, thunderous voice of God. Then add the glory cloud of the Holy Spirit that shows up. Peter, James, and John are alive in space and time, yet somehow amid they are amid the Holy Trinity and two of God's most holy chosen people who bore crosses for God to the end, who endured and then gained their eternal souls. This would be enough to make us all fall to the ground. But that is the point. That is how we should experience the Trinity. After all, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom comes from humility before God. Peter repeatedly learns that God is not his equal or just some extra thing in his life, but that God is infinitely higher and utterly central to his life. Best of all, his preview of heaven in the Transfiguration was recorded by the Apostle John so that we can all go there to the mountain again and again and see the preview that Jesus offered. Contemplative prayer done on the mountain of transfiguration is where the intellect, will, and even our dangerous imaginations can seek a glimpse of heaven. We can see the sky and the stars, but we cannot see the third heaven without the help of scripture and prayer, the Holy Spirit, and God's grace. The invisible realm is beyond reason and requires the submission of our intellect and will to see. Another example of a clue about heaven is when Jesus is dying on the cross. He tells St. Dismas, the good thief, that 
today you will be with me in paradise. And he's not talking about Hawaii. He's talking about the third heaven. It is the place of everlasting worship of God, where everyone lives in obedience to God. And what is paradise? It's not likely what you think. Basically, paradise is where everyone just lives out the Ten Commandments. That is what heaven is. People living in joyous obedience to God and singing together without trying to win or one-up God or each other. That is what the music of the birds and clouds and stars and planets and angels and saints is. Paradise is kind of like the end of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, where all of the Who's in Whoville sing together out of joy even after all their consumer stuff is stolen. In fact, the good thief on the cross, in his humiliation, is being purged and purified for paradise right alongside God incarnate. St. Dismas has a change, a repentance, a turning to Jesus who's sitting, who's right next to him. Obedience to God comes late to St. Dismas, but the only thing that matters is this, is that it happens, that it comes, it arrives, the change happens, and it's a true change. Yes, perhaps he only labored in the field for an hour, but Jesus is generous and gives him the full day's wages. He's already singing God's praise while being tortured to death. St. Dismas now desires to be obedient, not out of fear, not for the promise of heaven, but out of the joy that comes from the forgiveness of a loving father. He wants to follow the commandments and live in harmony with God's will. And what happens when his turn is pure and true? What happens then? He is granted entry into paradise by Christ. Jesus says that heaven is paradise. Again, no harps. In the end, the third heaven isn't that hard to understand because it's just people living the commandments and embracing God's love by giving up their will and ego. What St. Dismas discovers is in his last hours is what many of us never will because our own will is in the way of God's will. Regarding this mysterious third heaven, the question of time arises. Now, in the first inversion, I spent a lot of time discussing the nature of time, uh, but here we must consider the nature of time once more. This falls into mystery territory as well. Jesus is like a best friend who won't tell all the spoilers. He only tells us what we need to know to have ultimate enjoyment, or what is known as the beatific vision, pure happiness upon reaching heaven. If we are talking about heaven as the sky and stars, then time certainly exists, as we can track asteroids and land rockets on Mars. We measure wind in terms of miles per hour. But if we mean the third heaven, Empyrean, the highest heaven of the angels and saints, then I'm afraid that knowing the nature of time is beyond my pay grade. God is eternal outside of time because he created time. Time is a creature. God is the maker, the prime mover, and the first cause. He is most certainly outside of time, but he can also be present in time because everything exists only because of him. Um, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the incarnation of Christ, both prove that God can enter into time, he can make miracles happen in space and time, and he knows everything that will happen for all time because he's not in time. But he can enter time. It's weird. However, <clears throat> what about the time? What about time in the heaven where the angels and saints are? There is an idea from St. Thomas Aquinas and others called eternity, which is not quite the same as eternity. This is not spoken of much today. I just never hear of it a lot. 
but of eternity is an interesting topic. I wish it were spoke of more. Uh, time may be different in St. Paul's, what St. Paul calls the third heaven, where the saints are. And does time exist in this highest heaven, this third heaven? What do we know about it, if anything? Well, Jimmy Aiken is a great apologist and writer, and he wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to Heaven, which I've linked here. And it can help us. Here's what he says. Connected with the question of whether heaven is a particular place is the issue of whether time exists in it. A popular conception is that it does not. The logic is fairly simple. God exists outside of time. God dwells in heaven. Therefore, there is no time in heaven. That's true enough when heaven is conceived of exclusively as the dwelling place of God, but it is not true when it is conceived of as a place that is occupied by angels and by humans after their deaths. In that case, a different sense of the word time is involved. The First Vatican Council taught that God, from the beginning of time, brought into being from nothing the twofold created order, that is, the spiritual and the bodily, the angelic and the earthly, and thereafter the human, which is, in a way, common to both, since it is composed of spirit and body. This indicates that the spiritual realm is created and subject to time. Thus, John Paul II taught that eternity, in the sense of being beyond time, is here the element which essentially distinguishes God from the world. While the latter is subject to change and passes away, God remains beyond the passing of the world. So that's what Jimmy Aiken wrote, quoting John Paul II and the First Vatican Council. So in short, time may exist in the highest heaven, or some form that we don't fully understand. It'll be different than we can grasp. But the good news, the great news, is that if we partake in the sacraments and die in a state of grace, we will learn the answer. As far as salvation goes, we do not know the details about the place Jesus prepares. This is difficult, but this is where the mysteries of the faith faith can be great sources of meditation and humility. God is first. I know I've repeated that a fair amount in these inversions, but the heavens are mentioned as his initial step in creation. Earth comes afterward. Worth noting here is that the heavens are created as God created out of nothing, and that is to say the heavens did not exist before or concurrently with God. Like time, the heavens were also created. Like the stars in the sky, the highest heaven is also created. The thrones, dominions, powers, and principalities all are created by God, who created all out of nothing. In this order of introduction regarding creation, heaven gets top billing over earth. This doesn't belittle earth. It simply makes an argument that the spiritual realm existed before material things. And this is why spirit is higher than matter. This is why we should realize that our soul has a body too, as the spirit gives life to the material realm. This order also places us in the proper posture of humility before God because there is an order to creation and even beings within creation. Interestingly, this ordering fits with modern science, but I don't think that's the main point, since the sacred writer was making a point about religious truth, not modern physics. Genesis is not a math book or a science book, but a book of higher truths. But still, it makes me pause to notice the accuracy. According to the Big Bang Theory, the heavens were created first, if by the word heavens we mean the parts needed for making stars. Truly, heavens is a term worth much contemplation, because it can mean the stars and the sky, or it can mean the spiritual realm, or it can mean both or all three of those things, and it does mean all three of those things. Just as we have both souls and bodies, so do the heavens. 
there is a spiritual heaven and the starry heaven. As it turns out, astrology is mostly nonsense, but the astrologers are correct about a couple of things. The position of Saturn and Jupiter and Alpha Centauri do matter to us because like the planets and stars, we also have matter and all of these bodies have a gravitational effect on each other. But the effect of the stars and planets is not focused on us. That's the mistake of astrology. The music of the spheres and the heavens has the purpose of glorifying God, and that's all. Indeed, these heavenly bodies matter to us because, like all of creation, they matter to God. But they do not dictate our moods or beliefs because all things created by God that didn't experience the fall are still rightly aimed at God in their purpose. The birds and clouds in the nearest heaven, the sky, are good just as the harmonic motion of the starry night is good. But best of all is the highest heaven, where the angels continually sing God's praises. However, the angels are just doing what the stars and the birds are doing, which is glorifying God. Like the birds, we should live our lives as a small humming in the great song of creation. Just as birds sing, we should make our own song of praise. Birds are fruitful and they multiply, working and singing, and so should we. The stars are in motion, dancing and giving light, and so should we. The saints give witness to the lights that we too can become through the humble offering of ourselves for the glory of God. No bird or star competes with God, rather they are in concert with God. No bird or star attempts to make a name for itself, rather they make a name for God. Both birds, stars, and angels give us the same lesson that Christ did. Uh, all three of them, not both. The education of Christ surrounds us in the heavens. If only we could forget about ourselves to partake in the great play of creation. The goal of life is to reach heaven. Yet, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among us. And he also said, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So forget honor and wealth. Look upward to the heavens as the birds and stars and angels do. The point here is to be inverted in your understanding of the heavens. All of creation glorifies God, from the birds to the stars to the seraphim. This is why the Sanctus, 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 the Holy, 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 is sung right before the Eucharistic prayer at Mass. The hosts of this song are the seraphim, the cherubim, and the angels, in the highest heaven, the third heaven. And like any concert, there are lights raised in the audience, moving in unison, and to partake in the divine nature, we raise our light to play a part in this amazing show, so that while we are just one little light, we can see that we are part of a whole. Every anonymous star adds to the majesty of the night sky, despite getting no name or notice. Our little light of faith is part of the whole, and we can share in the joy because of the certainty that God is at the center of all things, not us. Next time at Mass, when you sing the following words, the holy, 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 know that you are part of a choir that includes all of creation from us on earth and upward to all three heavens. And this is why the Mass is more than just an obligation, it is a gift.